Father God, thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather as a church to sing to you songs that are both a proclamation of what we believe as well as prayer for what we hope to live out and experience in our life, following you by faith. And Lord, as we turn to your word right now, we ask that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts to believe your truth for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be with all of you this afternoon. Uh, it was a kind of a short week for us. The kids had a lot of time off of school for some reason this past week. I think it was President's Day, the celebration of George Washington's birthday. So that was nice. Um, but Coming to this passage today um, in 2 Samuel 23, I wanted to kind of start off with a question for all of you. And it's a little bit of a serious question, so I don't mean to necessarily make it a super somber uh, feel right off the bat, but, but it is serious. Have you ever wondered what your last words will be? Have you ever wondered what you would say right before you pass? I spent some time this week reading on the internet about the supposed last words of some famous people, and it was pretty interesting. Um, I guess you might say I had a morbid curiosity, uh, pun intended. Uh, some of the last words were, were strange. Uh, for example, Steve Jobs, uh, the founder of Apple, it said by his sister when she was writing about what happened that as he was on his deathbed, he looked up at his wife, and he looked past the family, kind of beyond them, like over her shoulder, and he just said, Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Three times before he died. Kind of a strange thing. According to those in the know, Winston Churchill, the great leader of the UK, before he passed from this world, having done a lot of things in his 90 years, simply said, I'm bored of it all. And from church history, one of the best, St. Lawrence of Rome was said to have quipped to his persecutors as he was being burned over the coals. I'm already well done on this side. Please turn me over. The Catholic Church calls him the patron saint of chefs and comedians. The truth is, most people aren't so quotable in the end. Upon further research, talking and, and looking at what people have written about those who, who really spend time with people near the end, it seems that most people at the very end, simply say one or two words, something like the name of their spouse or their child, something like, I love you. So again, have you ever wondered what your last words would be? And more precisely to the text that we're going to look at today, if you had a chance to plan out your last words, instead of just kind of being surprised by the coming of death, if you had a chance to decide what you wanted to leave for those who were staying behind, what would you say then? Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 23. The passage that we're going to study today is about last words. Now, not the kind of last words I mentioned of those who are famous, but more like the last words of someone who wanted to leave a message for those who are still alive. Not the kind of last words you say as the final utterance of your conscious mind, but more a final address to people so that they would get what you wanted them to know. You know, when George Washington, who we just talked about, chose to kind of step down from being nominated as a president in the United States, he wrote a farewell letter. 
In this farewell letter that he wrote, he published in a newspaper, and they read it in the Senate every year to this day. And in this farewell address, he took the opportunity to use those official last words to tell the nation about the things they needed to know and guard against and remember. And so 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7, this is the sort of last words that we see. David is at the end of his reign, and we've been going through the books of 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel, and we've seen all of David's life and reign, and this is the end, or near the end, of his life. And so he decides to choose his own official last words carefully, to impart something important to anyone who would read these words and listen. And as a boy who loved to sing songs and a man who loved to write them, it only makes sense that these last words of David would be a poem. And so we read this poem of last words together, starting in Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 1. Now these are the words, the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away. For they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear. And they are utterly consumed with fire. These are the last words of David. Near the end of his life, the last official things he tells the people as their king. And they are, of course, the words of the Lord. And so as we study this passage, what we want to see is what David wanted to leave for the people. They're words that look back, look forward, and look to eternity. And they tell us that what truly matters is knowing God, fearing God, obeying God. And if you have God, you'll be all right. So let's get right into how David does this through this poem. There are four images in this poem that David gives to Israel and to us that tell us in the end what we ought to know and value to experience the goodness of God. Four images, and we're going to look at them together one at a time. The first image that David gives to us in this passage is the image of the oracle. The oracle. O-R-A-C-L-E. Look at verse 1. Now, these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, this is an introduction. David is kind of introducing himself, though he doesn't need an introduction. And the one thing you'll notice about this is just how positive it is. And it's kind of cool. Um, I like to watch sports every once in a while, and one thing I love is the way that like a prize fighter or a boxer is announced by the announcer. You guys know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to do it for you, but when they get out there, they kind of say it in this this loud, um, boisterous way. You get the stats of the person. You get where they're from. You get their nickname, and you say it loud and long and super slow, right? You just say their name and and all of their accomplishments. You introduce them, and this is what is happening as we start the passage. David's farewell poem to Israel serves 
as an introduction that reminds us of just how good a king David was. Now, we've already said at the end of these books that what happens in the last few chapters is not chronological per se, but is kind of a uh, overall evaluation of the reign of David. And as we've gone through the story of David, we know that near the end, things were a little bit rough, right? He did have that great sin with Bathsheba. He had uh, the rebellion of his son Absalom. He had all sorts of things happen that weren't quite what we would have expected if we were to look at David fighting Goliath all the way back in 1 Samuel 16 and 17. And so what we need to be reminded of by the author of 2 Samuel is that David was a legendary king. Anybody here remember Michael Jordan on the Wizards? Please don't. Okay, that's what the psalmist is saying. If you're going to remember one thing about David, don't remember this last failure that he had. Don't remember that he was a man who ultimately did sin like all of us. Those things are important, but you have to understand if we're being objective about David, he was a great king. He was the son of Jesse, just a shepherd boy, but became the man who was raised on high. The anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. In other translations, you might say Israel's favorite song. It's an introduction fit for a king. His ascension, his poetry, his life, his accomplishments. And so at the end of it all, we need to understand that God's estimation of David was that he was a good king. And this evaluation of David, this clearly positive affirmation of who he was, leads us directly to the first image, which I said was the oracle. According to David himself, the poem he's about to write, these last words are the oracle of the king who was chosen by God. Now, what do you think about when you hear the word oracle? What comes to mind immediately? If you don't know what an oracle is at all, then don't worry. It probably just means that you're not a nerd. You're a normal person. But if you did think about something when you heard the word oracle, then it probably means you're some sort of nerd. And what you thought about tells me what kind of nerd you are. If you thought about the middle-aged African-American program from the movie The Matrix, you might be something of a movie nerd. If you think about the software company Oracle, founded by Larry Ellison, maybe you're like a tech nerd or something like that. If you think about ancient Greece and the Oracle at Delphi, then you're definitely a history nerd. If you think about what I think about, then you're probably a money nerd. Because when I think about Oracle, my mind immediately goes to Warren Buffett, the Oracle of Omaha, as he's called by his observers and fans. Now, why is he called the Oracle of Omaha? Because he's had this tremendous career of of investing, and he's given this great advice, and he's one of the richest men on the planet who likes to pass out his wisdom to people who will hear it. He is practical. He is thoughtful. He's a quotable guy, and when he speaks, people listen. I imagine there's some people right here in this room who just read his letter yesterday that he sent out. Now, when we talk about an oracle you might think that it had to do with telling the future. That an oracle is some sort of prophecy about what's going to happen. That's not really what it means. An oracle is simply a statement given by someone who is so important and wise that you need to listen. An oracle is a statement that has added weight given to it because it is a saying of a person worth listening to. And more specifically in the Bible, when the Bible talks about oracles, it is almost always that the saying ultimately comes from God. 
that you need to listen to this because God himself is giving us some wisdom that we need to listen to. And that's what we see in verses 2 and 3. David says, after the introduction of him as this king chosen by God, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. Wow. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. And what David is saying is that the words that he's about to say deserve the utmost respect because they are not simply the words of a man. They're not simply the words of a king. They are the words of God. Given by the Spirit of the Lord, the one who reigns over everything has something to tell his people. And so the first image of the oracle tells us that what we are about to hear is something we better listen to. Now, why start here? Why does David take the time to say this about himself? Well, it's because David wanted the people of Israel and all of us who read this oracle to recognize that what makes David unique, what makes David special, what makes David worth listening to was not his military success. And it wasn't his power or his wealth. It was this. David was a king who knew God. David was a man who loved God and had a relationship with him. And God revealed his word to David and through David to his people. That's an incredible thing. This image of the oracle is a reminder from the aging king that what we need as the people of God is God himself. We need to listen to him. We need his word. And yet I wonder often who it is we listen to. You know, I talked about a lot of different oracles. I know a lot of you would probably have your ears perk up if I said, hey, I just spoke with uh, Larry Ellison about starting a software company and he gave me some tips to pass to you. You'd probably be like, all right, let's get coffee right away. If I told you I spoke directly with Warren Buffett about what to do with the church's money over the next three years, you'd be all ears. But what about the words of a man who knew God? A king who lived a life of faith, who was chosen by God, and raised up by God, and even disciplined by God in his sin, a man who was loved by God. The question is, do we care to listen to him? David calls us to do that, because here's the truth. If you want to experience the goodness of God in your life, then you need to listen to his words, written in the scriptures. That's what the oracle teaches us. And that leads us to the second image of this poem, from the oracle to the ruler. The ruler. The second image is of a ruler, obviously not a school ruler like a tool, but someone who rules or reigns or exercises authority. And specifically here, the image David wants the reader to get is of a good ruler who rules in the fear of God. So let's read. Starting in the second half of verse 3 in this poem, David says, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Now again, this is poetry. The Bible is filled with poetry. It's not the easiest thing for us to interpret and read in our modern day and age, but it is important. And one of the most basic rules about poetry, no matter the language you're writing in, is to show and not just tell. The image David presents here is less about what a king looks like as much as what it feels like when you have the right sort of person ruling in your life. 
David is helping us understand what God wants us to know and feel that one of the best things you can experience is to have a good, godly ruler. And this is why he uses these images of nature in verse 4. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout on the earth. He's using this imagery from the world to reflect a feeling that we've all had. Now, if you're struggling with this, I understand. The other night, my wife and I went on a date. First date we'd been on in quite a while. And we went out, um, and it was evening time, and the sun was going down. And as we were driving on, like, the tollway, um, my wife looked up, and she said, look at the sky. It's so beautiful, right? It's like orange. It's, it, the clouds were there. It looked so beautiful. And I was being kind of grumpy. I said, that's how the sky always looks. <laughs> like, uh, let's have a good date. Um, but then we drove by some people who were on the sidewalk, and they all had their phones out. I was like, what's going on? And they're all taking pictures of the sunset that my wife was talking about. Okay, so I understand if you're a little bit of a grump like me and you can't really get into the whole nature thing, but my wife was right. David wants us to understand. Don't be like me. Don't be grumpy. Imagine these images and recognize what they want us to feel. I'm going to read them again. The first rays of sun after a long night. The sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. There's a feeling you're supposed to get. A bright, beautiful day with no clouds in the sky. Have you ever felt that? I have, actually. If I think back in my life, there have been times when I've been going through something difficult and I've gone outside and been able to step into the sunlight on a day when it wasn't too windy. It was just perfectly lit. And to feel the warmth, it made me feel reinvigorated. Have you guys felt something like that before? This is what David is getting at. Rain that makes grass sprout. It's a picture of renewal, of satisfaction, of hope that you finally got something that you needed. And if we're really listening to these comparisons, I think we could sum up the feeling of these images and pictures with this. I didn't know how much I needed that until now. Have you guys ever felt that way? I didn't know how good that would feel until just now when I experienced it. Like a good day with friends when you left your phone accidentally at home. Or a conversation with your aging parents that reveal things you never thought to ask. It's an unexpected but deeply needed good thing. This is what David wants us to see. We were meant to be ruled by something. All of us are ruled by something or someone at any given time. But as people created by God, we were meant to be ruled by someone good. And it's incredibly good to be under someone who exercises their authority in the fear of God in a righteous and just way. Have you ever had a good boss? Who's the best boss you ever had? Think about that person. What were they like? I've said it to many of you before, and I'll say it again, that one of the most powerful ways that we can impact people in this world for Christ is to be a good boss. Wherever you have authority over people, wherever you have influence over people, to act in a way that a God-fearing person would, with justice and righteousness, treating people with love and respect and kindness, it changes people's lives. And if you've experienced it, you know that's how it feels. 
There is nothing better or almost nothing better than for a person to have a spouse or a parent or or a boss who desires to exercise their authority in a loving, selfless, and good way. At the same time, there's almost nothing worse than to have one who misuses their authority to abuse or harm you. And it reflects this reality that this is exactly how God made us to live. You see, God himself is the perfect ruler. He himself is the perfect judge. He is the perfect authority, the perfect king. And when God created Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis, he said, have dominion over this earth. Rule as I would rule. And from that, there's going to be blessing. We were created to have loving, righteous, just, God-fearing leadership and to be those types of leaders ourselves. That applies to whatever area of life you find yourself in today. But here's the reality. In our sin, we mess it up. In our sin, we abuse our authority. We see how those who are in submission sometimes get mistreated and used. And so David says, when you experience it rightly, it's a breath of fresh air. It's the sunshine on your skin after a long, cold night. David's image of the ruler is meant to paint a picture for us about what to look for. It's almost like a wanted poster on a Disney movie in the forest, right? Stuck on a tree. What are you supposed to look for in life? What do you actually need? Well, there's a lot of things you could say to answer that question. But what David says here is what every person needs is to be ruled over by someone who is good and just. David's image of the ruler shows us that if we want to experience the goodness of God, you need to be ruled by one who rules the way that God wants. It has application for us, but it's also an evaluation of David's rule. David was not a perfect king at all. He was not a perfect man. He is a man who failed in many ways, but he was a man who loved God and loved others. And he is a man who showed the people, he gave them a taste of what a godly ruler could look like. But of course, David was coming to an end. At this point in his life, none of his sons had shown much uh, potential for being a good ruler in his stead. And so the question is, how do we get this? If it's really so good and we're supposed to experience it, then how are we today especially supposed to experience this? We don't live in Israel. We don't live under David. We're not hanging out back in those days. And so the poem leads us then to the next image, from the ruler to the, the house. Thirdly, the house. David, as I said, is at the end of his life. And we have to recognize that this would have been a sad thing for Israel, okay? Um, I spoke about George Washington, and I'm going to speak about him a little bit more, how he wrote a letter when he chose not to run again for president. And I think it's interesting because more than any other kind of semi-modern figure, I think George Washington, to me, embodies how the people probably felt about King David. Now, maybe you're not super into American history um, as I am, but it is interesting to know how revered George Washington was by the people of America early on. He was so revered that they started celebrating his birthday not way after the fact, after he died. While he was alive, I don't know if you knew this, they started celebrating Washington's birthday while he was alive. They would gather together for uh, banquets and stuff in the new United States to celebrate the still-living first president. 
When he died and passed away, they had a period of 69 days of public mourning throughout the country. It's crazy. It's a long, long time. And in his eulogy, Washington was called first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. It's hard to even imagine a politician these days being given such um, reveration, right? so, such, such love and affection by the people. Now, put yourself in the shoes of Israel. For 300 years, they've been oppressed and pillaged and at war and, and, and fighting with people and just not having security even in the promised land. And David is really the one who changed that. David is the one who united them, who gave them a capital city, who suppressed and subdued all their enemies on every side. The Bible says David gave them peace from war. David gave them prosperity from famine. David gave them all these things. First in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of Israel. But now he's about to die. The sun is setting. The rain is drying up. feels like the song is about to end. And I like to imagine that there was probably a lot of fear and confusion and anxiety in the nation, especially when he published his last words. Like, whoa, what's that about? It's the end. But David doesn't want to do any of that. He's not here to kind of have hand wringing or or fear or talk about how sad it will be. He continues his poem with words of trust in the Lord. Read together with me from verse 5. For does not my house... Stand so with God. For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? And with his last words, as he faces his death, David presents to the people the image of his house. Now, what's so special about his house? If you've forgotten, I'll remind you, it's okay. David desired to build a house for God. When he had finally finished subduing the enemies of Israel and he had uh, gathered the people together at the capital city of Jerusalem, he wanted to build a house for God, a temple where God could be worshipped. But God told him no. He said, no, you're not going to build me a house, David. I am going to build you a house. And it wasn't a physical house. It was a house as in a family. And he made a promise with David in 2 Samuel 7 that by his house, God would bless Israel and the world, that there would be a ruler from his house who would reign on the throne forever. His line, his dynasty, his descendants would be the recipients of an everlasting covenant. That's what David is pointing us to. And so this image that David gives us of the house being secure is because it is held up, it is buttressed, it is foundationed on the trustworthy promises of God. We need to recognize that this image is meant to point us and the people of Israel to just who you can really trust. It's God. Have you ever known someone whose word was gold? Someone who you could just rely on. If they said something you knew, they would be there. I play this game with my wife a lot um, where we say, if you knew something was needed and it was a life or death situation, right? You were going to die if someone didn't come through. Who would you call in the church? And let me tell you, you don't want to hear the answers to the game that we play. Just kidding. A lot of you are on the list. (laughs) But do you know someone whose word is gold? If they say they would do something, even in passing or on a text, you could trust they would do it. There's actually not that many humans like that. But God is like that. Every jot and tittle, 
Every word in scriptures, every promise he's made, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant, and no matter how big and seemingly impossible, is something you can trust in. And that's something that is, is, is incredible for us as Christians. We forget it so often because there are a lot of promises that are difficult for us to receive and accept and believe. The Bible tells us that the epitome of trustworthiness is God himself. It gives David peace as he faces his end, and he points the people to trust in the Lord as well. Now, we need to understand that David, as he talks about his house, he is looking forward because God said there would be one of your sons, a descendant who would reign forever. He's looking forward. He knows he's going to die. His Hope is not in the fact that that no harm is going to come to his family. What he is expressing is confidence that God will continue to care for the people, care for his people through the house of David. He's looking forward. He's looking ahead. But as Christians, we know how God kept this promise. We look back to Jesus. After David's death, Solomon reigned, but he sinned and he was not the everlasting king. And the kings that came after him, though we're not going to preach through these books just yet, they failed over and over and over again. In fact, things got so bad that the people were sent out of the land into exile. Things got worse than they would have ever expected, but God's promise did not fail. God's everlasting covenant with David did not end. His house was ordered and secure. And when it all seemed lost after hundreds of years, the Bible says a branch sprung forth and grew the town of Bethlehem when Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph in that city of David. Luke 1 says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The image of the house, God's everlasting covenant, pointed the people of David's time and our time to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He lived a perfect life. He died the sinner's death that you and I deserve. But God raised him from the dead and he ascended to reign on high forever. And through this descendant of the house of David, we can be freed from sin and condemnation and hell, receive forgiveness of sins. We can live under the reign of God. I wonder sometimes as we go through our day-to-day lives, if we actually think about this at all. What did Jesus say? He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The reign of God. Seek first God's rule in your life and his righteousness and all these other things that you worry about, they'll fall into place in God's way. And yet, for so many of us, we desire to rule over our own lives, to rule over our own hearts, to be the king in our situation. And it leads us towards sin and ruin. But the Bible says when we are ruled by Jesus, by a righteous and just king, you can be secure and rest in him. I don't know all the things you might be going through today. I know some of them. I know that there are difficult things in your life. Jesus is the king you need. And it's not just lip service. It's not just saying that. It's clinging to him. It means when, when things are happening that you didn't expect, when things are happening that, that tempt you then to turn to 
the ways of the world or the sinfulness of the flesh, you instead turn to Christ. You pray to him, you trust in him, you believe that he is with you and will not leave or forsake you. You see, Jesus is the ruler from the house of David who we can trust because he is trustworthy. There's an old gospel sharing tract that shows a picture of two hearts. You guys know what I'm talking about? Two hearts, two little thrones. On the one throne, yourself and all your life in disarray. But on the other, what the Bible offers, that if Jesus is on the throne of your heart, then everything else falls into place. It means recognizing you can't do it yourself. It means recognizing his ways are right and then obeying his words by faith. I talk about this a lot, and I don't mean to be moralistic in our approach to the Bible, but I truly believe that the gridlock of most Christian spiritual life is precisely where they no longer seek to obey. They decided it's not worth it, or I can't do it, or it's just not reasonable. To put away the deeds of the flesh and to put on Christ, to walk according to the Spirit, to live for God's rule and not our own. Whether that's with your money, with your relationships, with your time, even with your family and your home. David shows us that the way to experience the goodness of God is to turn to the only perfect eternal king, who is Jesus, the son of David. And this leads us finally to the last image of David's poem, the judgment, the judgment. Verses six through seven give us the image of judgment. But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. The images that close this poem are pretty negative. They're in contrast to the positive images from before. And here David talks about the worthless and the judgment they receive. And we need to understand the picture being painted again. It's the picture of agriculture of a field. There are good plants and there are thorns or weeds that need to be gotten rid of, thrown away. David says that worthless men are like thorns that cannot be taken by the hand, but the one who approaches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear. Now, what is he saying? He's kind of mixing two different images together. Um, and it'll help you to understand what he's getting at if you've ever done any sort of gardening. I don't know about you guys. I don't love gardening, but I do it because I'm cheap. I don't want to pay someone else to do my gardening. So I get out there. And if you've ever done it yourself, you know that you need to have long sleeves, long pants, good shoes, and a pair of gloves. But if you don't, you're going to get wrecked. You're going to get cut up. You're going to get all sorts of things stuck inside your skin and hair and clothing. It's not a good feel. There are plenty of ways to get cut up in the thorns. If you ever drive down, even if you don't do it yourself, you drive down the street in the summertime, you go look at guys who are doing landscaping. They are not dressed in shorts and tank tops. They are fully covered up. They are armored up. That's kind of what David is getting at. He's mixing these pictures Right? He's talking about gardening, how you go gardening and you have to get armored up, so to speak, to get the thorns and the weeds. And then he says, the person who approaches them arms himself with the iron and spear of a shaft. Now, you don't use a spear to garden, right? You probably use something else, like some uh, hedge cutters or something. You use these tools of gardening, but he's making the point that the thorns are the enemy of the farmer. And so it is with God. 
that those who are against him make themselves enemies of the Lord. They are approached not as friends, but as opponents. There are two images, one of gardening and one of war. The worthless are thorny plants and enemies of God. And so the final image of fire has a double meaning as well. Thorns and weeds and useless plants are left out in the field to be burned up with fire when the harvest is done. And so it will be for the enemies of God's rule. This is a hard thing to hear. The house of David brings about the rule of God, but the house of David also brings about the judgment of God. I said that the images in this poem point backwards and forwards and into eternity, and that's just it right here. David was a good king. He gave so many blessings to the people of Israel, but he was also used by God to judge nations in sin. And looking down in the future to Jesus, he came to save us. He came not not to, to condemn the world, but to save us from our sins. He came to give us life and life abundantly. And that is the gospel and good news we preach. But guess what? He's coming again. And when he does, he will come with a sword, the Bible says. Not everyone will receive the rule of God. Not everyone will willfully bow their knee. There will be those who reject God and Jesus as king. The gospel tells us any person, any person in this room can be saved. But the Bible also tells us not all will. And so the question is, who will you be? There are thorns that will be burned up in the end. Some will harden their hearts to God. Some will mock him, choose to live in sin rather than live in submission. Some will scoff at the love of God who created us and rules all things and think somehow that in ourselves we have everything needed for now and eternity. The Bible says those who do that will be cast into the fire. Don't let it be you. The image of judgment, it implores us to make right with Jesus, the son of David, so we can be ready for eternity. Now, this poem ends in a bit of a downer. It ends in a negative place. But we need to recognize that when the Bible talks about fire, and it does, maybe more than you might expect, it isn't the end. It's one possible ending. But as this poem has shown us, there is another. For those who find the rule of God through his son, Jesus Christ, through the fire, At the end of the end comes a new day when we will finally be with God forever. Second Peter 3, the apostle Peter says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But according to his promise, we, Christians, those who are saved, are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so the image of judgment shows us that the way to experience God's goodness is to be saved by God himself from the judgment to come. And that only happens through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. 
That's what David wanted the people to know. This passage in 2 Samuel 23 contains the last words of David because this is what he felt was most important. You know, I think about all the different things that I try to teach my children and tell them, and I know that the time with them is limited, right? I'm shocked that I'm halfway there with my eldest child already, that there's only a few more years, short years left, when I can have input into their lives. And I wonder, what are the things I would want to tell them? What are the things I want to impart to them? What are the things that are really important? This is what David does for us. Yeah, there's stuff going on in your life. But do you recognize how important the rule of God, the goodness of God, knowing God is? Maybe you're wondering where God is at in some trial right now. With your family, with your work, something you can't control. Maybe there's something that is causing you to even start to doubt. There's a crisis of faith. Maybe there's a relationship or a person you want to love and help, but you don't know how to impact them or get through them. You have no power in that way. Maybe something in your life makes you feel like death is on the horizon. A diagnosis or a problem or a challenge. If so, then let the last words of a great king who lived through all that and more speak to us. If you want to experience the goodness of God, listen to his words. Be ruled by his ways. Trust in Jesus as king and be saved from his judgment into the glory of new life for now and for eternity. We'll close here. A few years after George Washington stepped away from the national spotlight, he fell ill on a winter afternoon and he quickly deteriorated. It was just unexpected. It was just three years after he had uh, kind of finished up his political career. He got super sick that night and being a famous person, uh, we actually know what he said right before he died. We know his final last words, his real last words, so to speak, not his official last words, because they recorded it. And this is what he said. He was getting sick. He was feeling like he was about to go. And he said to one of the people standing by, promise me you will not let them put my corpse into the vault for at least three days. The person said, what? And they said, he said, do you understand? And the guy said, yes, I do. And he said, tis well. And he passed away. Strange words, right? What was going on? Well, turns out, that around the time George Washington died, there had been reports circling about New England that a young boy had seemingly died but come back to life two days later. That everyone thought he was dead, but he actually was resuscitated two days after the fact. And so it appears that George Washington held out a slight hope that a physician might come along, even if he passed out of consciousness, and find a way to revive him or resuscitate him even after his seeming death. Now, it turns out it wasn't the case. He didn't come back. It was the end. But we need to know this. The end will come for us all. It's a fact. But there's good news. We have someone far greater. We have something far greater as Christians than the hope that we'll be resuscitated in two or three days. What do we have? We know that there was a man who died, fully died, for three days was buried in a tomb, who God rose 
victorious from the grave. We have hope not in a resuscitation, but because of Jesus in a resurrection. And so we can worship and trust and obey him. That no matter what happens in the end, no matter how eloquent or bumbling your last words are, they won't be the end of your story. If you believe in Christ, if you know God, you'll be all right. And when the end comes, what comes after the end will be better than we can imagine. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today and we pray for an eternal perspective. Sometimes it takes a glimpse of the end of our life to recognize what is truly important in life. And we pray, God, that as Christians, for those who are Christians here, that would be the case. That we would see our challenges and our hopes and our dreams and our decisions in light of eternity not overcome by anxiety and fear, but trust in who you are, in your word, and in the work of Jesus Christ, your son. And if there are any here who have not placed their trust in Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to see that there is great hope. There is great good news given to us that we can be forgiven that we can be saved from judgment, not by the good works we do, but by receiving the gift of eternal life from Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right now, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray where you're at. There's some way in your life in which you see the need for God to reign and to rule to experience his goodness. Would you bring that before the Lord now in prayer just for a few minutes and we'll close together. Father God, our lives are short. For those who know you, it is only the beginning. And so I pray, God, for our church, we might know you and love you know your goodness and trust in your greatness in jesus name we pray amen